0: Welcome to Relevant Parties by Carhartt Work in Progress. I'm Char Ravens, and in this series, I'm going behind the scenes at some of the world's best independent record labels to meet the visionaries and the obsessives who've made musical history. In each episode, we sit down with one of these label founders to find out what makes them tick. We hear the tall tales and big ideas behind some of the most influential records and scenes of the past thirty years, and maybe try to work out just what possessed them. To take on one of the most challenging jobs in the music industry. My guest on this episode of Relevant Parties is Samuel Valenti IV, whose rather grand-sounding moniker doesn't really have any bearing on his overall demeanour. Samuel is the head of Ghostly International, founded in Ann Arbor, Michigan in 1999. And uh, Ghostly is named kind of in jest. Uh, I guess at the time he was poking fun at the idea of being some kind of big international brand with a shiny headquarters and a snazzy logo. Uh, But as it turns out... 20 odd years into the label's history Ghostly kind of is a big international brand with a shiny headquarters and a snazzy logo or at least as much as that can be possible for an independent label still releasing strange and wonderful electronic music from the fringes Samuel is originally from the suburbs of Detroit and Detroit is really crucial to the story of Ghostly the industrial history and also the legacy of techno and midwestern dance music It's a label centred around a few key Detroit figures, certainly from the beginning, Matthew Deere, Tad Mullinix and Todd Osborne. And over the years, this core nucleus has remained intact, even as the label has expanded in all kinds of directions musically. There's uh, Mary Latimore's harp music, Dabri's freaky hip-hop instrumentals, epic electronic vistas by Telephone Tel Aviv and Steve Housechild and of course the entire discography of Spectral Sound, the dance floor-oriented counterpart to Ghostly. But what's really unique about Ghostly in the world of indie record labels is that it's so much more than a record label. On top of the music they put out, there's this whole universe of things, beautiful art prints, all kinds of objects for your wardrobe and for your life. There's mugs, t-shirts. There's umbrellas, once there was coffee, there's a micro-sampler, I've seen a xylophone. Uh, There are collaborations with brands like Eastpac and Vans. They even made a solid marble record crate. And rather unlike a lot of indie record label bosses throughout history, Samuel is a savvy businessman. He's an early adopter kind of guy. And throughout the existence of Ghostly, which exactly corresponds with the shift from physical into digital media, he has spent a lot of time testing ideas for how to make a label work in the 21st century. And uh, he's doing pretty well at it. So I spoke to him on the phone from his home in New York, and we talked about the early days of Ghostly in the record stores of Ann Arbor about navigating the slippery economics of the music industry, about death and the loss of an important mentor, and about the indignity of being labelled Goop for the Pitchfork set. So here we go. Relevant parties meet Ghostly International. It's breakfast time in New York. Uh, where are you now? Maybe you could paint a picture.
1: Sure. Um, I am home um, at my apartment in Upper East Side, New York. Um which is a actually a really uh sort of poignant place to be at this moment. So yeah, I think it's you know sun is shining, so there is a, a sense that the world is uh trying to become anew, but yeah, it's uh it's a it's a strange solemn moment for sure.
0: Yeah. Definitely the fact that it's so sunny has been really strange here, but it's <laughs> even just sitting outside is you feel like you're not really supposed to, you're not really supposed to be enjoying yourself in any way obviously because all of this stuff is going on, so exactly um okay so ghostly is very much not just a record label um no record label is just a record label i guess but ghostly does a lot of things um you you create a lot of other things there are all kinds of items that you can get that have a ghostly badge on them (laughs) i have found uh some t-shirts and tote bags there are like art prints very beautiful art prints uh, I found a xylophone in the store. I'm not sure if you still sell that. Um, but a few years ago, you made um probably the strangest piece of label merchandise I've ever seen, which was a solid marble record crate carved to look like it's kind of crumbling to pieces like a sort of ancient Greek temple ruin that you can also put vinyl in. I mean, I don't even want to think about the shipping costs for what for for buying that, but tell me why why would you make such a thing?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I think, um, as you as you talk to a lot of record label people, um, everyone has their sort of motivations, right? I mean, a lot of a lot of great labels start because it's an artist who can't find a place to put out their music, or the industry has sort of shunned them. Um, you find people who have a friend whose whose music needs to be heard, which I kind of feel like I fall in that category. But I also I also like making things or being involved in the making of things, and I think the the physical. Um, aspect of music culture to me has always been really compelling Um, starting as a DJ in the 90s with buying vinyl um, and, and of course the story of Ghostly also kind of maps over the history of the digitization of music to some degree when I started it was you know I was file sharing using Napster and LimeWire and stuff in my dorm room but still, to me, it was like, oh, well, I think there's still a need for, like, objects. So I think, um, to get back to the question, I think the idea of all the stuff we do is kind of, it's a timestamp, it's a collaboration, so it's a memory of working with somebody. My former colleague, Brian Fichtner, um was in touch with this design studio called Snarkitecture, who is Daniel Arsham and Alex Mustanen, who make really crazy objects, usually that have that sort of eroding, uh, reliquary-type feeling, and so... Mm-hmm. We talked about what we should do, and, um, you know, obviously vinyl is sort of the atomic element. It's the first thing Ghostly ever made. It's the thing, hopefully the last thing Ghostly ever makes. And it's like, well, I don't know if we thought too deep about it, but I think the, the, what I think of it as is it's both a love letter and sort of like a de- de- death knell. <laughs> for the vinyl era, right? So it's this medium that kind of comes and goes out of popularity. It's heavy, it's expensive, it's petroleum, it's kind of egotistical, but it's also like sort of elemental. Mm. And so I think the, the crates to me, we only made three of them. We actually never put them up for sale, but they were kind of meant as, a, I think, a story around records. Like, is it is it like a weight pulling us down? Is it a time-honoured, you know, battered badge of uh, respect for this medium? Like, sort of more of a question mark. But yeah, I think Ghostly as a record label is meant to be a platform for ideas and collaborations and artists.
0: Okay, let's get a bit biographical here. So Samuel Valenti fourth. Immediately makes me think there is a third, second, and first. Uh, so that's kind of interesting to me. Um, certainly in Europe, in, in the UK, that's it's quite unusual to have uh, to meet somebody who is a third or a fourth. So I guess my question is who are the Valentis? Who, who, what is your your gra- grand lineage?
1: <laughs> it's funny. I, f- I feel like my European and, and uh, international friends think it means more than it does. Yeah. I think because numbers have sort of like a, a stateliness oh, to them. Oh, very much so. It seems I, grand I, to me. Yeah, so I think to, to me it's almost like uh, I, I tease that it's just unimaginative parents. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I was supposed to be like Christopher John or some sort of seventies ish name, and then I was born and I looked like my dad, and then they were like, "Oh, you should be Sam." <laughs> like it was like it wasn't that like big of a story. Um, <laughs> my dad's Sam the third, um, who grew up in Detroit. His dad uh, was the second. So I mean, yeah, so it's not, um, there's no story beyond just lookalikes. <laughs> 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 I, um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, my parents are from, um, Met and Michigan. Um, I don't have any sort of a musical or artistic legacy, really B- music fandom ran in the house. I still have my dad's records, hmm. big, he was a big Motown guy. He talks about like dropping the needle on the temptations in college, <laughs> And they would go to shows in Detroit at the Fox Theater and see, like, Little Stevie Wonder. And I just think Michigan is just the music city. Every, like, 10, 20 years, it has a big innovation of the last, you know, whether it's, like, obviously Motown or, um, you know, MC5, Stooges era. Obviously, um, Detroit techno is a big one for me. Even, like, some of the hip-hop, like Dilla and other things like it's just a very self-styled city obviously it's exported that to the world but I also think it's the ed- musical culture of Michigan that kind of is like the DNA of Ghostly is radio culture like DJs playing all different kinds of sounds mixing them into one thing and making it seem cohesive and obviously Craftwork. we just lost Florian but Craftwork's music is very is like adhered to Detroit in a really powerful way the DJ culture of Detroit took from Italo Disco and Craftwork and P-Funk and kind of like stewed it into its own thing. So there's like a weird Eurocentric um, angle that goes, that Detroit understood and I think used, grafted itself onto. And I think um, that to me as a kid growing up, buying records felt very liberating because I was more of a hip hop fan and then realizing that, oh, you can listen to Kraftwerk and, and then the hip hop records are like sample jazz. And then, you know, a- a Warp Records was taking drum and bass, which was sort of a deviation of hip hop. And pushing it into this outer limit, so I felt like Detroit has aided all of that development, and Ghostly is just sort of a disciple of that thinking.
0: So, where, whereabouts did you grow up? It, not quite in the center, somewhere else,
1: suburbs? Um, I grew up in the suburbs. Um, got into DJing in high school. I just I was really more into the hip hop thing and so scratching and all that stuff. And started DJing dances and house parties and things. Had my little speakers that I would cart around. And, um,
0: and you were DJ Space
1: Ghost, right? I was DJ Space Ghost. <laughs> So the ghost um, thing I is would, like, like
0: it was already in there right from the beginning.
1: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was just the, I thought it was fun to draw and you could do the little ghostly logo. I would like do the fake graffiti type tags and that just felt, it just felt like a cool, there was no real meaning. It just felt right. And then <laughs> I kept seeing, but then the, so I, I was like, oh yeah, I want to do a label because labels to me seem like, oh, I'm not going to make music. I just kind of knew that wasn't my talent, but a label could be like a Def Jam sleeve. It's like a image and a graphic and a sound. Identity, like a little bit of world building. And Detroit labels were a really good template, right? So mm. Planet E, Transmat, EarthSats Audio, Interdimensional Transmissions. They all had, all the Detroit artists had their own imprint. It was almost like a car manufacturing stamp. Like Transmat had a big logo and that was Derek May's church. And Planet mm. E had this Carl Craigs and because all the artists had their own labels, it seemed very accessible. You could make your record, put it in your trunk. You could go to record time, sell some copies to the store, go back next week, pick up your cash, drop some more off. <laughs> so it felt it was very like accessible. And then you, and then everybody would come through that store. So every DJ in the city, Mike Huckabee, who we just lost
0: mm.
1: as well was sort of one of the gate in a good way, gatekeepers of the sound. Right. And he would go, that record's crap. You want this Maurizio record. You want this. Go to the listening station. <laughs> and you were sort of like, it was almost like the military, like you were hardened into taste in a good way.
0: I heard that he would like have records ready for whichever DJ came in to the extent where he was kind of deciding whatever, what the whole city was playing. Amazing.
1: Exactly. And not just techno, but house DJs, hip hop DJs could have a, a a little paper bag with a name on it and be like, boom. (laughs) And DJ Godfather worked there. Mike Cervito worked there. And so you you have this like neural network of like pre-internet taste engine, which is super helpful. And that's why I'm so devoted to record stores, because I think I've learned more from record stores than I have from Mm. anything else. Just being around people who care. uh, I'm very loyal to that construct, even though I know it will change and has changed.
0: So So, tell me about, a dj called house shoes and how house shoes kind of brought you into the world of clubs you've done your
1: done your research um yeah so house shoes is uh currently based in la but a detroit dj one of the best hip-hop djs i've ever seen worked alongside dj des was one of the people responsible for helping put dilla's work into the world and helping um jd when he as his, he was called then giving him a platform and, and helping build that um so how shoes with DJ at Friday nights at um, Saint Andrew's Hall, which is a lot of there's a really funny spin article from the '90s. i maybe you've seen or I'll forward to you. It was like the roughest bouncers in America. There's a photo of all of them as like the <laughs> toughest uh, roughnecks. But so Saint Andrew's Hall had three floors. Um, the up there, upstairs room ended up being kind of like a chill out room. Often the main room was like was a hip hop night every Friday. And he was the Mike Huckabee of a store called street corner music in Southfield, which has since moved, but he was the hip hop guy and he get all the records. He would do, he would set me up, you know, Hey, get this, get to check that out. Save stuff for me. I actually still have my first JD slum village tape that he get He sold me in 95 was like a Xeroxed hmm. J Dilla homemade tape. That's probably my most prized musical possession. Um yeah, he would, he was like, <laughs> I think he knew I could drive him to, to work basically. <laughs> I don't know how this happened but he's like come down if you want to go to see me hang out come down with me when I load into the club help me bring my records in and you won't you don't have to get carded so I was able to like go listen to music I would just sit and listen I don't think I even I can't remember even trying to drink because I, I knew I didn't I wouldn't happen. I just would sit and listen and play for a few hours. And he, every Friday he's sort of setting this, this scene, playing these sounds that he got that week, and then I would come in Monday. Oh, what was that? Was that and then and then I would go to record time also. So so you're starting to get this uh, honing effect of taste that was really fun. So yeah, House Shoes I, I consider my first DJ mentor, musical mentor.
0: Was he playing m- mainly music from Detroit, mainly hip hop from Detroit, local stuff? Or
1: no, no, he was. I mean, I think there wasn't actually that much to go around, really. Okay, yeah. I think he was. It was playing, and um, I think that era, to me too, of like maybe ninety-two to ninety-six, hip hop had a really m- great moment. Obviously, the the Biggies and the Wu Tangs and Nas's, but you had um, major label values as far as production value attached to like a really amazing producer culture, and then you, so there was money being spent on music that was really vibrant at the right time. Because mm-hmm. I think post. Dr. Dre, every major was, thought rap was going to be their big breadwinner. Um, so, a lot of really good records were made expensively that um, maybe wouldn't have been made. So, I was very fir- firmly a hip hop kid. I didn't really understand electronic music until I started going to raves, um, which were adjacent. You know, Detroit rave culture kind of come, came and went a couple times. Um, and then, late 90s, there was a new wave. So, like, Detroit rave was always like abandoned auto factory. You know, suburban promoter books five DJs, does flyers, but just puts a number, map point. You called for it. Go to this place. You would blow. You, the next day or two, you'd blow black crap out of your nose because you would be inhaling all that whatever was on the walls. <laughs> And uh, that's a real (laughs) way. Yeah, that was great. And it was, you know, and I think that the physicality of dance music and actually hearing it live and seeing how um, fascinating it was, it wasn't even about drugs. It was about um, just like, okay, this is what this music is. It wasn't the cheesy CD they had at the store. It was a thing and an experience and liberated my mind and made me excited about so much more.
0: Mm. And when you say uh, factories, did you go to the Packard plant?
1: Yeah, Packer was the best one right. that I remembered. Yeah, um, for the it, for
0: those who will never go, I guess uh, was it already what like a closed down abandoned factory in there at that time? It was just like ruins because it's yeah, it's it kind of ruins It was now, probably
1: right? twenty years gone. Yeah, okay. maybe where where the Rays were held was completely you know desolate. Um, you know, and then the, I think the cops started cracking down more towards the late nineties, and it sort of died back down. Mm-hmm. But getting a taste of it, and then again the same record store straying into a different section and being, taking more risks it, it felt like a complete education a complete circle where all of that music was in play mm. you know even and this is before the label existed this was just like me my basement every weekend listening to records and m- making mixtapes and that's my, my my purest state is like uh, mm-hmm. you know just listen, enjoying records and happy the, the happiness of diving into a new discovery
0: so you went to a college in Ann Arbor right? Mm-hmm. And studied art history. Yeah. What was your kind of plan for when you went to Ann Arbor? What What did you think you were going to do with your life at that point?
1: Um, I found my like college letter that I, you know, like you write, you would write a one pager to three pager to say like, I'm going to do this or whatever. And I and I did, and I forgot I did, but I actually said I wanted to start a label. Wow. Which was funny to me because I, <laughs> I thought it was more sort of ambling at the time. I thought I was just kind of like figuring it out, but I guess I had an idea for it. And I definitely had the name. I had no I had no artists on the label. I didn't know any people who made music really. So I didn't think of it as like a job. I was like, oh, I think you can make a record and sell it and figure it out. I didn't think anything about really the long-term, but I was excited about the aesthetic and the, the like sound that I was excited about, which is more house and techno at the time. And I met a couple of key people. I met, um, Dave Shaman, who was Disco D, this is DJ name, who was kind of like the the, ne- the next Sherpa up the mountain. He um, <laughs> had already put out a record um, and and self-released one and worked with Bad Boy Bill out of Chicago on one and already was DJing at, at clubs. And he was underage too, so he had to sneak into his own gigs. <laughs> and then I also met Matthew Deer at a house party. He was playing in the basement. and they let him play there just because he asked, and he, and he had a synthesizer and a drum machine. He was playing a live set of like techno. And I was like, this is cool. And I, I asked, I was like, Oh, can I get your number? We should talk about music. I don't know what I said and (laughs) ended up having lunch the next week. And then, um, for the next year just kind of became friends with him and we'd go through material and be like, Oh, this is a good one. This is a good one. And started talking about the label, um, that I wanted to do and and sort of planning to put a record out. So him and Dave were the first record on ghostly.
0: Mm. What was Matthew like at the time?
1: I think he was, I mean, Matt has always had confidence Maybe that and that was appealing. I think he always had like a sense of um, he knew he was good at what he was going to do, <laughs> and he was also very excited and very focused. Like I had my turntables in my dorm room, and he hadn't started DJing yet, but he would just come over and I would just and he could just practice and play. He, any chance he had to DJ, he would take it. He would throw raves in the basement of the pizza shop he worked at, and like r- I would say, raves with a slower <laughs> pace yeah. He was just kind of like having fun and making stuff and. Um, Yeah, we just became friends and we were like, Dave, help us finish this record. And we went over to his house with Matthew's um, floppy disks from this NPC and Dave helped sequence out uh, Put Your Hands Up for Detroit, which is our first A-side. You know, got it done, made it, had a record, sold them out of my trunk to the stores. Detroit DJs were playing it. So I felt felt like validating. It wasn't a business, but it was a thing. It existed.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I was going to ask about that or what the impact of that record was because given that it had this second life via the Freddie the Legrand track it's like yeah. it, it feels almost like a kind of cult item in a sense but I don't know what, what was the kind of impact at the time did it seem like it was a, a good kind of entry for Ghostly into the world
1: well I think it I think it became in, in sort of its uh l- legacy it became more than it was and also I love it as a talisman because it's Dave and Matt and then the art on the back is Michael Siegel, who is the first artist, visual artist I work with. So it's kind of this like complete, I wanted the cover to look like New order <laughs> substance because that was always my favorite cover. This is the Bodoni font. It's perfect, like pristine. The back is this cartoon. The record is these two characters. And so, yeah, I like it as a like atomic element DNA point, but it's not really like we don't Keep it in stock. We don't even have it available for digital sales. I, I like it as like an artifact.
0: In a way, I guess it's uh, it's definitely an artifact of of that exact time period as well because it has a kind of almost like a French touch kind of '90s disco we thing. We were trying to, to do it. French touch, yeah, yeah, yeah. Filter
1: disco. <laughs> Great. So it's kind of crap, but it's like sweet. It's like a seven, like a punk seven-inch that's like trying to just make something that yeah. you look that you're proud of. You know? But
0: maybe just around the corners, a kind of different strand of of techno was coming up that you got a little bit more interested in and the kind of minimal stuff and which is very it's a lot less flamboyant obviously um it's a good word yeah. so yeah so so that track obviously had a, a second life yeah it was actually number one in the UK the Fetty LeGrand version <laughs> so to me I was like oh that's a yeah that's there's an original to that track that I remember yeah from back then. yeah a lot of people don't know yeah. and we
1: don't really like wave it around just because it's kind of its own fun little narrative um uh yeah it kind of it got sampled it was kind of a back and forth as to like who who was it and whose who's is it and we figured it out you know um, but it it also speaks to the sort of narrative of uh, how dance music works right mm-hmm. like totally. that I always loved, like the, the, there's a DJ um, Carlos Souffrant from Michigan that is in the, in the Bay now we always talked about records being kind of like a call and response to each other that Re- records are, are conversation amongst themselves especially in detroit techno where you had like richie Houghton and derek and they would kind of go back and forth so that record becoming another record is a perfect i love how you don't know what's going to happen once you release a record to the wind it becomes its own story it's how that little kernel of matthew's voice that we left at the end of a track as an cappella became fodder like a sort of cannon fire like a raw strand to use for another whole era of like electro house and club culture using detroit as this sort of like buzzword that obviously carries volumes and the like and the language between detroit and the uk too is always is, is a very storied one too and detroit techno maybe wouldn't be what it is without having been amplified by uk rave from what i understand that's my understanding of the history and
0: i'd like to know a lot more about disco d though tell me a little bit about david
1: david um was like the classic high energy sort of hyper like sometimes even like annoying but like he would come up and kind of, like, slap you in the head and, like, kind of, <laughs> but it was always, like, like, loving, but he was just, like, too much energy, like, ADD kid. <laughs> and I think he was, like, kind of a band nerd and kind of, like, a quasi-pro rollerblader and all this stuff before I knew him, but he was always, like, the overachiever. Hmm. And, yeah, just, like, a really great human, very spiritual and connected and thoughtful. And, um, yeah, we lost Dave uh 2008. Dave took his life. I mean, he, was, he had some really heavy... Um, issues with bipolar, and you know, I think just as a lot of people do succumb to to the illness. Um, so yeah, I, I miss him a lot, especially these days because I know how I know how successful Dave would be, and how much it'd be fun to connect with him and see what he's doing. And I think of Matthew as the sort of founding artist. I think of Dave as sort of a, a spiritual co-founder, as a inspiration. You know, that that yeah. that friend that everyone has that's sort of like high octane, but pushes you to be better, you
0: know. I like the idea of him being the, the second Sherpa of the mountain. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so in that period, I guess a lot's going on in terms of you trying to, well, not trying to, quite quickly, I think, establishing what Ghostly is going to be. So you launch Spectral Sound pretty soon afterwards as well as i guess a, a, a dance music label but it's it's not really a sub label is it it's more of a, a a sister i guess or tell me what was what was the purpose of spectral and how does it kind of yeah. continue to well it, it continues to exist of course so tell me about that kind of auxiliary stream of, of music you've got coming out in spectral
1: so spectral is is the sister label i think of it as the yin the yin yang of ghostly it's kind of you know it's not a junior it's a you know the name obviously means like dark ghost specter the logo has like a little like lisa left eye lopez hash mark under the eye which i seemed <laughs> cool at the time it was just like the, it was like the tougher the 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 jekyll hyde of ghostly um and it's it's the purpose is mostly around dance music electro house techno and and tributaries from there but i, I think coming from the, the midwestern dance music tradition, I always feel like you needed like a, a grounding cable. So I like the idea of having this sort of Ghostly being this, um, you know, free range garden that's allowed to do whatever it needs to do to get to evolve and then Spectral being kind of this through line of dance music. And they blur, they kind of it was like train tracks, they sort of intersect or artists kind of leave one, leave start with the other. But um, yeah, it's, it's 150 releases now and less prolific than Ghostly which is, I think is around 350 but it has the it's sort of on a need-to-know basis. Whenever we find music we love, it's it, it just happens. And then the origin of that is um, the other. The next Sherpas are Todd Osborne and um, Tad Molinix, uh, who records as Dabry and JTC and Charles Monnier and a bunch of other cool aliases and has his own label, Bopside. So Todd Osborne, who has recorded for the label, as well as Reflex, as well as Running Back and a lot of awesome labels, he... Had, he had a record store called Dubplate Play Pressure that I was going to in Ann Arbor. And Todd's sort of a character. He's like, you have to sort of make him like you a little bit. You have to sort of earn your trust with him. Classic record and shop it, dude. Yeah. <laughs> but he, yeah, he's like, and it's not because it's not he's trying to sort of, um, he's not guarding anything. He just doesn't want to deal with your, your nonsense. If you're going to come in and blab all day and waste his time, he just can't deal because he's just got so much on his mind. He can, he just makes, He just has his own agenda in a good way another, again, another force multiplier person that kind of pushes your taste. Um, and so, and eventually, I, and Tad Molinix was working for him at the store and Tad was DJing and had been making music and uh, been in bands his whole life and kind of was like the skater kid with a shaved head who played in like death metal or like, noise bands and made techno and house He was just like kind of this brainiac genius. Hmm. And I think I came into the store one day and Tad was working and Todd had had the first go see record that Tad had seen. And, I. Uh, t- Todd's like, hey, you should, Tad should give you some music. He has his, his own stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah, that'd be great. You know, and Tad went to his car and brought a cassette tape. That was, again, the, the, the pre-CDR era. And uh, and I took it home, and he's like, yeah, it's all sorts of stuff on it, but check out the first stuff. It's, like, the techno stuff. And I was like, kept listening to it, like, auto-reverse back and forth and being like, holy shit, this is, everything on here is good. And there's like, IBM, hip-hop beats, house, techno, like, sort of EBM industrial, like, like how could this be one person? So eventually we started talking, and I was like, "We got to put out a lot of this." Like, and then Tad sort of structured all the aliases based on the sounds. I think some of them he already had, some of them he made up. <laughs> and we we're like, "Okay." So now it's like, "Okay, Ghostly now has just changed entirely. Where Ghostly has to be freeform and spectral." At the time, Matthew was just making focused on dance music, and both of them need their own lanes. So like, in some ways, you know, the, they they're the image of the label was founded on is like diversity of sound and, uh, experimentation. So Tad Molenix is, we sort of reset the, the clock. GI one is Tad Mullenix's debut. Spectral one is Matthew Deere's second record, but GHS 001 is the last of the Hands Up for Detroit sort of was walled off and then Ghostly starts with those two artists around 2000, 2001.
0: Right. This is why I got a little bit lost in the Discogs for a while, where there were several things num- that were number one. I was like, mm, someone's, <laughs> someone's papered over the history here somehow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, this record shop, I'm, I'm a little bit intrigued by a record store called Dubplate Pressure, because to me that <laughs> sounds p- quite UK. <laughs> I don't know uh, if that's like the focus of that store, but I definitely get the sense that Todd and Tad were, were interested in kind of jungle, idm stuff that was coming from the uk and maybe to an extent detroit more broadly was into that but i I don't know anything about that
1: yeah there's always been a strain of drum and bass fandom to me it was the next logical music from hip-hop because it had a lot of the more like jump up dj hype type things had the red man vocal samples and like those artists would remix like erica Bedu or Aliyah. so you if you got the uk 12 it had the drum and bass remix on it So to me, it was like a safe first step into electronic music where I was like, oh, this is kind of like hip hop adjacent. And then Todd and Tad were making their own records. They had, and they had, they did these Raga records that were really great under Sound Murder, which is Todd and SK1, which is Tad. So they had already released a record too. But yeah, definitely they were, they were buying UK Jungle Records and Warp Records as well as Detroit Techno. And so Todd's store was, yeah, very much that feeder. And that being the first electronic music, I was just like, wow, this is awesome. It's so futuristic. The sort of like Metalheads, 96, 7. Obviously, I loved like Fotech and Source Direct. And they were more into, I think, Ram and a lot of those. I like sort of the more melodic like V records sound. And yeah, it just seemed exciting. You also could mix it halftime, you know, with like 80 BPM hip hop to 160 BPM drum and bass. So you could the Legos fit together, which to me seemed exciting. So I started buying those records and Todd was sort of like that next wave of discovery. And then Tad... Being a wealth of musical knowledge and his taste coming in to Ghostly, yeah, those, those, those that's the next crew. I mean, and, and Tad is still I work with him every year on something. Same with Matthew and same with Todd. You know.
0: And were they were they a crew in a in a kind of real sense? Did you guys hang out locally and and go to shows together and stuff, or was it a little bit more business?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I I feel like Ghostly helped put a frame around a lot of disparate artists that didn't really, there was no really affiliation. Like Todd and Tag were friends. Matt and I were friends. There was record store people like Dyke house and there wasn't like a focused scene. So I think the early days of ghostly was like sort of scene making. So Ann Arbor, because it's a college town, it like washes away. It's like the sandcastle that like goes away every four years, (laughs) which is great because it allows for new things, but it also like it doesn't have a permanence.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, So I, and I, and I, and there was a night called solar, which Dave Disco DJed at. And they would bring like Kenny Larkin and Sean Deason and Carl Craig to Ann Arbor. Um, So that was like the first parties that I really liked. And then Ghostly started doing events around 2000, 2001 at a club called Necto. It was a Nectarine, actually where Jeff Mills was the wizard and DJed at the Nectarine in the 80s. That was his, where he got his start. So again, there's no connection anymore, but there's all these sort of shrines to the past. And Brendan Gillen, who runs Interdimensional Transmissions and is Ectomorph, a part of Ectomorph, um, was sort of another mentor. He had the, the radio show on WCBN, and Brendan had already had success in releasing records on his own label. He put out IF's Space Invaders of Smoking Grass in America, which is a hugely inspirational record for us as a crew. It was like this perfect pop electro combustion engine, and he was really helpful and in, in, showing me the way I just go to his house and we just talk for hours about music and revel in that. And, um, yeah, just, there wasn't really a scene. So I think go- ghostly was able to, and it, it, able to put these DJs on in rotation. we started a night called touch with our friend, John Ozias at Necto. And the big room was a D- big DJ, pretty much all the the best D- Detroit DJs came through. And then we had the glass room, which was the ghostly room. And it was just a little side room with all our friends and it was goofy. And I would play, uh, matt would play tab would play tab would play and it was just like uh that was a testing ground so every week we could bring they could bring their new stuff sort of road test the music live so like oh, like, oh that track you played at midnight what was that we should put that out mm-hmm. and then again the flywheel of creation dissemination distribution it all was con- connected and then i started to have a, more of a crew my friend lissa was the first employee at ghostly is at my apartment so she would like Literally, I, she had a key, so she would just like come in and i be getting up and like we start working and I don't really know what we thought we were doing. We just would try to figure out, okay, we need to get these jackets printed and <laughs> let's send 30 copies to New York to Watts Distribution and let's get that remix finished. Eventually, more people started joining the, the family.
0: Did you have any advice on how to actually run a label? Anything about the business side? It was all kind of like
1: just learn from, you know, Dave and Brendan Gillen and... It was kind of slapdash, and then and, you know, then I would take whatever I learned from school marketing class and try to apply it. And like art history to me wasn't like I didn't think I was going to work at a gallery or an auction house. I just liked art history is about scenes and groups of artists making a, a dent, <laughs> eventually becoming too successful and then being un, un, unseated by the next crew of artists who hated everything that they the other ones <laughs> stood for. So I saw it as like music. It's like the secular. And then 20 years later, there's a new wave of those artists and it's the same story. So artistry to me was just like a a fertile proving ground. It also allowed my visual interest to kind of dovetail with the music. So the Ghostly ghostly 5 is Disco Nouveau, which was a compilation of new artists doing electro and Italo and sort of 80s style dance music which was kind of our maybe one of our first breakout moments and really we got you know simon reynolds wrote about it in uncut and Hugh wrote about it and sleaze nation which was the coolest magazine to me at the time covered our our detroit release party with dmx crew and i was like so i think that was like the ghostly breakout of like okay this is crazy package with the swedish designer doing the art with all these cool artists like adult and ectomorph and if doing cool songs that are underground but also very catchy and like this was right. This dovetails with Electro Clash unintentionally, like because uh, yeah. I remember going, seeing an ad for Electro Clash in paper magazine and being like, "This looks cool." But like, and I was like, literally putting in the pressing for Disco Nouveau. So I just got lucky with the Zeitgeist, <laughs> and that sort of started a whole other wave of story. But we kind of screwed up, and we, I think either we screwed up or we did it right because we kind of sh- shunned that sound right after that. So everyone's like, Oh, cool. There's this new electro label. But I, I think I knew how savage the press was about like trend. I knew that trends were like a surefire way to die. Because I watched <laughs> like gigolo and I watched all these labels that I love kind of and even Moax was one of my first favorite labels ever because it was like art and music and watch how savage Lavelle got and being like, Oh, shit, if we don't change our sound, we're going to get stuck. And then we're going to be a fossil so we kind of a- actively like stopped doing Electro right after that, which kind of, I think, formixed our fans, but it also kind of a- allowed us not to go too far down one lane. So I don't know if it was a good idea or a bad idea, but that was the thinking.
0: <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about Matthew Deer's first album, Um, because Mm -hmm. when, when we spoke before briefly about some key records, you labeled this one as getting our shit together. Um, (laughs) but that's it. But this is 2003. So there's a good three years of not entirely getting your shit together, but tell me why that record marks a kind of, um, a milestone in some sense for you. I've always been an album person,
1: even, and, and I, it's it's sort of a contradiction because I, I love the single as this sort of, uh, mile marker, but albums are the ones that I think, for me, i have always been the, like, statement piece. Plus, it's also a chance to do a sleeve and, like, tell a big story and do a press release. And I think I knew press responded better to an album. It didn't get stuck in the singles section. It'd be the first big picture. So I was always like, how are we going to make a good album? You know, and I think the first album we did that was good was, was Dabry's album, Tad Nexus record, which is really, I think, still very good. Um, one Three, which is sort of part of his trilogy. And that got some love.
0: And Dabry is um, Tad, we should clarify. Dabry
1: is Tad. Yeah, it's Dabry's Tad It's Tad being Tad hip-hop.
0: Tad being hip-hop.
1: That was where we first got our thing. So Tad was sort of the first out of the gate with an album. 2003, I remember we toured. It was Tad, Matt, and myself. And Tad was the headliner. It was Dabry. We, we, played, we, we did Scotland. We did uh, Glasgow. We did London at uh, Plastic People. Oh, great. Yeah, like Tad was kind of an underground dude at the time. And people were really starting to, like, recognize Ghostly as, like, an actual thing. So I remember doing our first European tour and I planned them and I probably was a terrible TM. I still am guilty, feel bad about that. But we, we got there and we played and did Berlin and met Perlon people hmm. um, and got into the, the minimal sound that was happening. Right. So yeah, it was just this perfect moment of we were the new, the next new thing in the underground conversation between the U.S. and Europe. And I always wanted to, I always felt like America needed another boomerang back at the time, I didn't think there was a lot of stuff besides the classic crew that was already doing it. There wasn't a lot of new stuff that I thought was challenging the the conversations, and it felt good to to be part of a new wave of artists.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about Tad, and I guess a couple of years, so about three years after Matthew's debut album.
1: I can talk about Matthew's. Effort. I slipped, I glossed over that. Sorry.
0: Well, we did a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Let's come back to Matthew's album.
1: Yeah. So Ma- so Matthew's album was like let's make a, a statement album. He had done a handful of 12 inches. I thought his music was at a level now that it could be. Because dance music albums often are pretty crap, right? Like, they're either trying to glom onto the success of a single and trying to pad it around with a couple intros and outros, and they they tend to get a little um, conceptual, maybe, or...
0: Yeah, it's usually some sci-fi theme or... A soundtrack for an imaginary film, one of those a hundred percent
1: and and so I, but I also saw I always liked the idea of Matthew as like a face in a good way, like he's a person as opposed to like the classic um Detroit image of like underground resistance and like right. no, I was like, wait, what if we invert that, and Matthew sings live and matthew like and not as an attempt to like storm the charts it wasn't a, it, that was never the idea. it was just it seemed more subversive to me to do that than to do another faceless dance record it was yep. like. What if you could have a person that was like a full functioning singer, but like actually a good producer? At the time, it seemed kind of controversial. Like, his picture's on the back of the record. All of his early records, he's on it. It's like a Dylan thing. The idea of Matthew Deere is like a shape shifting concept. It was weird. That was all right. That was the idea. So, that album is, you know, hundreds of songs whittled down into what I think is hopefully still a good flow and still like very dance heavy and club friendly but also like shows his range so yeah I look at that as like one of our first best statements of uh, what we were trying to do
0: and that seemed you feel quite unusual at the time to have that face at the front and to be making a record that was so eclectic maybe
1: I think so I think um, micro house was the sort of genre that it got lumped into I um, mean Herbert obviously is like the dawn of that moment um, Ac- acufin just sort of chopping samples and voices and kind of making that. No, a a pastiche. Um, But Matts were more like song structure. So it was like let's not, not it's not watering down techno, but it's like adding another like dimension. And I and I got you know the New York Times and Rolling Stone and you know a lot of people really picked up on it and understood what we were doing. And but it ultimately it predicted where Matt was going to go, which was like further into the avant-pop world.
0: So let's go back to Tad briefly. So Tad has all of these projects going on. Um, so there's James T. Cotton, which is House and Techno, Dabry, mm-hmm. which is hip hop, Charles Mania, which is EBM. Although was he releasing as Charles Mania right at the beginning, even? Was that early on
1: or was Yeah at the time it was like his like EBM, like more dance floor. Uh, he'd ghostly five and ghostly nine. Because the joke is that Tad's like half of the first ten records. And different
0: names. (laughs) So it looks like you had dozens of artists and actually quite a lot of them were Tad. Exactly. (laughs) Let's talk about him working with Jay Diller, because I guess Diller at that point in the first few years of of the decade, of the century, must have been a real local hero in Detroit, but perhaps wasn't exactly fully known or understood outside of Detroit. They ended up working together. um, And so I guess you were involved in that in some way um tell me a bit about what happened there
1: so yeah jay dilla he sort of popped up in different places so he produced for the far side he produced for tribe obviously slum village we were obsessed with um, but he, he was at the record store on the weekends you, you you'd run into him you'd see him he wasn't obviously he's become a deity uh you know a leg, a legend but at the time he was just this like create another genius dude from detroit right you know and so since the tad's first record is very much indebted to, to dilla's sound our friend Riley Brennan who was interviewing Dilla for a car magazine because he was a car reporter and Dilla had his sick uh bends and I think on the had the tape of it he asked Dilla he's like have you heard this guy Dabry and he, JD's think you can hear him think and he's like oh is it that like the white record with like the shapes on it and Riley's like yeah 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 he's like oh yeah I got that at, at record time that's that's so that's so dope I love that um and and he linked us and so Tad and I went drove to Dilla's and brought a beat tape that Tad had made and Fat Cat, uh, who's an amazing MC, who's on, on a lot of Tad's projects um, and Dilla's projects, obviously, uh, was there. And we were playing the B tape in Dilla's studio in his basement. And uh, they hit on this the game over beat and they both were like lit up, like, all right, this is it. So Tad, he's like, we'll get it to you in like a week or whatever. So Tad and I go home and and then, yeah, a week later we get in CDR in the mail and it's game over and it's a ridiculous song and that also allowed Tad who was wanted to expand his sound not just instrumental but also include MCs because that was where he wanted to go so 2-3 came out I think in '05, and Game Over which came out a little bit before that because we were still working on the album it took a lot of time, it's like 20 tracks that was one of our most big statement records at the time, it had Dilla, it had Doom, it had all these MCs we loved 20 tracks, WK Interact who we love as an artist, did the cover art it's just another complete thought You know, it wasn't, it wasn't very well reviewed the story of the early Ghostly stuff is like people liking what the artists did and then not liking that they evolved. <laughs> yeah, the Dabby Project to me is one of the most important projects on Ghostly. And obviously being a hip hop fan and revering these artists, it feels like one of the truest to the vision. Um, and Tad stewarded that,
0: obviously. Um, so I watched your TED Talk. which is online (laughs) so that was it was like it was about 10 years ago i think and one of the things that you talk about briefly in the ted talk which was it was actually held at at the university of michigan so i guess they invited you back as like a successful grad right
1: (laughs) i think so yeah
0: Yeah. um you talk a bit about experiencing a kind of a dip around uh 2006 the dip Mm -hmm. um, and the The way that you kind of strategized yourself out there, and I guess that's interesting, partly because I think plenty of labels maybe make it to the five year mark and then peter out for whatever reason and it might be because the the moment's gone and the scene that they're connected to isn't isn't really a thing anymore, or more likely they just fell out with all their artists um but I guess you got you got to this some kind of point and strategized your way out of it in some way so So tell me about what the dip was for Ghostly.
1: Yeah, I, I kind of look at that that era. The dip to me was uh, ripped off. I mean, no, you know, acknowledging the ripoff off um, of a Seth Godin idea, and I was I was trying to you know get into more. I guess it was like pop business psychology, just kind of finding analogs to look at because the record business didn't really have a lot of role models. So I was trying to sort of find something to adhere to that felt sensible. And so I think I was getting get more into that. A lot of it's crap, but you know, I, I still liked. I still like good. And I think he has good ideas. Um, and, and that book spoke to me cause it's, it's about, you know, and this is all, this was all like fresh buzzwords at the time, like the 10,000 hours thing where you're like to get good at anything. It's like you get good fast because you go from nothing to, to, you know, 20% good. And you feel like you're doing great. And then reality is you start to hit the hurdle of everyone can get to that point. And then it's like, how do you actually get through the next point? It's like, It's not a linear graph, it's a a dip, and then you're back up past the waterline. So I think I look at that as our dip period, where we were kind of, again, technology stuff, you know, the sale of records was going down, vinyl was dying a little bit. I just, yeah, I just felt this sort of, the steam had come out of the room. The exciting years, the growth years had ended, so... I don't know how we consciously strategize out of it. I, I looked at it as sort of a you know, a will a willingness to eat shit for a little bit. It also <laughs> is understanding that, that all, you know, back to the art history thing, any art movement is not a linear a linear growth forever. It goes like this. So if you accept that, I mean, corporations aren't allowed to do that because shareholders need, you know, consistent value. Mm. And obviously we've seen the downside of that mm. play out. So I was like, what if you allow the company to, to decline, but use that energy and momentum to like reassert,
0: you talk a little bit in that talk as well about curation the curation era which again I, i'm sure that when you gave that talk that might have been a more um buzzy word in a sense and now it feels like curation sure. is like oh god <laughs> everything's curated yeah. now um yeah but i wonder how you feel that that's developed a bit because is it getting harder to get your music to the right people to the people who you think would want to hear it or or has that have you worked out ways to make that happen for you more easily with new technology
1: yeah it's a good call i mean yeah it was definitely a buzzword but i also felt it definitely was exciting because it felt like the label doesn't have to be judged solely on whatever last month's release was it was like the again the ideology of like the the art museum you don't know what's going to be at the tate in 6 months but you should be able to trust that we're going to hold a standard or at least be interesting so that gave me a lot of excitement or also that's the beginning of the collaborations and the, the products and kind of thinking of ghostly as a platform for physical objects as well not as a revenue strategy i think people get it wrong they're like oh it's cool you have the merch so that you can make money when records don't it's like it doesn't really work that way it's really more another distillation of an idea in a time like we talked about and so being able to do a flash drive with Moss or sunglasses with Warby, it's like another thing to talk about, another cool project. So, I think this, that the timing, the, the multimedia aspect of Ghostly begins around there.
0: One thing that's often a big part of the story for independent labels, as you've kind of mentioned with creation and 4AD, is the the finances of it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and Ghostly was founded with you got some investment from your dad, right? And mm-hmm. I was wondering, you know, kind of <laughs> like in the interest of transparency, how do you think Ghostly would have worked if you hadn't had an initial kind of investment? Because nowadays it's a little bit different because you can just you can basically just start a label online and you don't really need to have much investment at all to get started. But when when you right. started, you did. And you've weathered quite a lot of changes in the industry anyway. Um, I mean, how important was it for you to have actually had that boost at, at the beginning?
1: But yeah, I think I think now you're right. I mean, yes, we could start a label today. You and I could um, throw it up on Bandcamp, and that's great. I think mean, that's that's great. That's the democratization at work, and there's downsides to that too because there's, there's just more artists and more uh, labels and harder to make a name. Mm. Um, but at the same time, it's great because any artist can have a label and should have a label. Um, but at the time, to make a thing, I don't know. I probably would have had to wait longer. I worked at a record store in, in college and – clothing store in high school and had a little bit of an MDJ money, but it wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to get the first record out as quickly. I probably would have had to work for another year or two to save up the money to do it right. So yeah, there's no question that, especially in the physical era, it wouldn't have been the same.
0: And after that, was it just purely you making decisions as they came up or did you, are you a kind of spontaneous person or a, a five-year plan kind of person?
1: I think a little bit of both. Cause I look at some, I, some choices i we've made and i'm like that was really smart in retrospect and (laughs) some things i'm like that was really stupid so it's i think at the time and i think that's why i was like getting more into like business theory was just because i i wanted to feel like i i didn't go to business school so i wanted to feel like i i was actually like had some skills i'm I'm not i'm not really an accountant type but I, i i think i believe in like longevity and and i believe in like investment and projects that make sense and obviously with streaming and whatnot it's proven it's and we also licensing we were early into sort of trying to figure out to get our music into commercials and TV shows and that was really where artists made their money at the beginning. Um Matt and Tad and their first real like chance to like invest or have a life was out of those decisions. Mm. So was I was I a great operator? Maybe not, but we did pick some of the right lanes to put our time into.
0: Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about, so Telephone Tel Aviv joined the label. What happened in the lead up to that? Because you ended up reissuing their first album and then releasing Josh's album under the Telephone Tel Aviv name last year.
1: Yeah, Josh Josh is like the um, person you fancy for years in school and don't don't get to ever date <laughs> until you're an adult. So I met Josh probably around 2000, 2001. We were in Ann Arbor, Michigan. They were in Chicago, Telephone, and, and the Hefty Records crew. And we kind of had a love love affair of of young labels, and um, we would visit them there. And we invited Telephone, uh, Josh and Charlie, to play in Ann Arbor, I think in 2000. So yeah, I was just a fan. And then um, we actually worked on Ghostly Swim together, the Ghostly Swim compilation. It was 20 different songs from different artists, so it had all sorts of sonic disparity and I was like we need to like glue this together somehow so I took it to Josh's studio in Chicago and we he with me over his shoulder <laughs> uh, mixed, mixed some and mastered it and kind of and he t- put it to tape even so it kind of like really stuck together so um I just like working with Josh he has a really great great ear um, and that was right at the eve of Telephone's album Immolate Yourself he had just finished it so we were listening to that And shortly after the album came out, uh, Charlie Cooper, half of Telephone at the time, passed away. So Charlie was a dear friend and another just kind of like shocking moment. And so he obviously, you know, tried to support Josh as a friend through the years and helped with like licensing stuff, publishing stuff. And then eventually it seemed likely that he was going to make more music. We kind of gave him a kick in the butt and uh, he finished his album Dreams Are Not Enough.
0: How did you feel about what he came up with on on dreams are not enough i mean i know it got a lot of acclaim but what was your kind of relationship to it because having been a fan and then having it on your label i don't know maybe it's uh is it easy to to be the kind of a and r function in that sense when you're you know you've been a fan rather than a kind of nurturer
1: yeah it's like i mean someone like josh who's so accomplished and has toured with giant bands and whatnot i I don't feel like my job is to um, tell him like what I think of the songs. It's more like encouraging him to release it to the world. You know.
0: Are you generally quite hands off from an A and R perspective? Do you have much input into like track selection and ordering and things like that? It depends
1: on the artist. Some artists kind of deliver a sort of finished object, and maybe we'll give notes on track listing. Sometimes artists want, need help with pairing up with other artists, so we do that sometimes. It really, it totally depends.
0: A kind of nerdy question, but I also saw that when, when you reissued Fahrenheit Fair Enough, you, it was actually remastered as well. Is that right? Yes. I was curious about why you would remaster something that was made in 2001 and what kind of benefits there are in that. I'm, I'm just curious about, see, to me, I, I understand why. A record from the 70s or 80s might get remastered, but it's quite interesting to think that in 20 years there is something that can be done with something that was digital in the first place.
1: That's a really good question.
0: This this may be, uh, I mean, this may be beyond my understanding anyway.
1: <laughs> no, it, no but think of, I mean, it's like, I think in some ways, actually a record from 2001 could have easily have been, squ- you know, like the sort of loudness wars of the 2000s people talk about on the idea that mastering got louder and louder so I think actually 2001 people things were really shrill from what I remember. Um I think the way that people probably bounced files. I'm not, I'm not a, a wizard with this stuff, but um we remastered Dad Ray's 13. We had Daddy Kev who does a lot of the, you know, brainfeeder sound, remaster it cuz Tad did it before um in 2001 and it sounded good, but it it sounded like 2001. And whereas like I think Kev was able to give it a little more roundedness and like fullness Without changing the character of the sound, so yeah, I think every era has its sort of limitations or expectations. Where I think sort of tinier stuff sounded cooler then, um, <laughs> but we're at a place now. Maybe we have better, we have better headphones, we have better playback. There's more expectation. Mm. So I like the idea that things constantly can be reassessed.
0: Yeah, for sure. So I have these quick fire questions to jazz it up. Sure. If Ghostly was an animal, what animal would it be?
1: um i'd probably say a turtle <laughs> um maybe because we just put a t-shirt out that had a turtle on it, it maybe smile um that's what that's what comes to mind yeah
0: if ghostly was a menu item what would it be
1: <laughs> i think like a lotte sort of like corn with some cheese and tasty nourishing that's what. that's all i got
0: <laughs> nourishing though <laughs> that's good it's like it's wholesome it's it's good for you okay if ghostly was a season which of the seasons
1: um i've always thought of ghostly is like a autumnal label i agree It is change in the inter- i totally yeah, agree yeah. okay good <laughs> we got we got a match yeah
0: it's like if you don't choose nice. fall autumnal then i would be confused yeah no
1: it was melancholy but joy beauty and the sadness sadness and the beauty
0: would you rather be in the city or the country
1: I guess the city. I like stimulation, even if it's not mine. It's, it's there. It's like something to feed off of.
0: Um, what was the last book that you read? Last
1: book I read was, I, I, I've been doing digital books, so my memory is less visual. Um, I
0: find it's harder to remember books that I've read as an ebook. They kind of don't, don't sit in my mind in the same way. Same with MP3s
1: and vinyl and stuff True. and streaming. I feel like just, you don't have the tactile. Um, I just read a book about the art market called Boom that was cool because it, it kind of filled in a lot of art historical gaps that I didn't have about the gallery culture and how it arose. So it's kind of a trashy title, but it, the subject was actually really, really good.
0: Okay, finally, what was the last film that you saw? I've
1: been watching the, like a lot of the Hugh Grant movies with my wife, and those have been pretty good. Uh <laughs> <laughs> like soft brain kind of, uh, <laughs> fun. So yeah, I've actually been liking those a lot.
0: That's nice. Quarantine brain, nostalgic. Lovely. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I wanted to talk to you a bit about the brand, I guess, or the f- various things that Ghostly does that are around the music. And one of the things, that you launched quite a long time ago that I think was very prescient in a lot of ways uh, was Drip, which mm-hmm. I guess in retrospect maybe didn't work out, but also I think really laid the blueprint for a lot of what people are still trying to do with music in terms of getting people access uh, to the music they like in a way that copes with the fact that the record stores are shut and the industry has changed so much. So, tell me a little bit about why you, about what Drip was, and, and why you came up with it, um, and and what happened with it.
1: Yeah. So, Drip started. It kind of the sort of seeds of it are we did it. We had an iPhone app called Discover, sorry, Discovery, and it was a color wheel, mood based. We tagged our catalog by hand by mood, color. You know, it's obviously very subjective, and you could put your finger over purple, which meant whatever, and then faster, slower, uh, more electronic or less electronic, and it would like create a little playlist. And that was really fun. And I think it got pe- us kind of thinking, like, oh, maybe we could do more stuff in technology. Maybe like, we're allowed to play in that sandbox. So my colleague, Miguel Sinkies, who's now at SoundCloud in Berlin, he, he was working at Ghostly, and we were like, What's this, what if we do like a subscription service? Because people were like, why can't I just buy everything give it to send it to me like a subscription so we made go see music service just really hack and there was no like subscription platforms at the time that worked so we'd made it for ourselves and we were like we're paying a good amount of you know 10 or 15 dollars a month for mp3s we're like okay this is something so like what if we open this up as its own brand obviously drip being the the action of getting stuff sent to you somewhere between fan club uh high quality files artist access, artist patronage, and I think the long-term vision was I wanted to get to a place where, you know, PETA had a drip and Record Store had a drip that you could just, everything, my interests were like what I subscribed to and I could see what you subscribe to and we could be like, oh, you also do this. I'll check that out. And sort of kind of like an affinity group. So instead of just social media where it's like a passive like, what you subscribe to becomes kind of your like coat of arms. And obviously music's a great place to start. So we had probably 50 or so labels and artists, um, Stone Throw, Mad Decent and Fool's Gold and even like jam bands and stuff. It was cool. It's getting to a good place. I think we didn't quite nail the execution as far as like the perfect amount of stuff to get for the money. We didn't. It wasn't mobile. So I think there's a lot of stuff that we could have done better, but our, everyone made money. No one... <laughs> All, we we didn't make money but none of the all the artists who signed up made money so i feel like it wasn't a, a failure i think and i think right now actually drip would be really uh well received
0: i think the idea of drip would serve the function of uh something like a fan club which again is like not something that people do anymore and although people can interact with their fans very easily now it's maybe harder for the fans to even find each other it's it's not, a, it's, it's, it's one thing for a fan to be able to send a message or, or a tweet to, or whatever to, to the artist that they like, but it's not so easy for them to identify each other and hang out together, which in many ways, historically is what music is about the kind of tribalism right. of being a fan and stuff.
1: Right. But then
0: on the other hand, what I found really interesting was that you'd come up with a mood based way to listen, which is exactly what Spotify does now. It was it was interesting that you would thought of that first.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, you know, I sure there was plenty of other variants on that. But yeah, I think we try to think about what we would want. So it's like, yeah, like Pandora was cool at the time because it was like, oh, I like Bob Dylan. So I just, but that's like a, the wrong way up the funnel. And I, it was like, how do you feel or how do you want to feel is actually how you approach music when you're going through your records. You're not like, I want to go find that blank album. You're like, I want a record that will chill me out. And then that whittles your collection down to this. Yeah, I think Spotify's done a great job with that. I think Bandcamp's done a great job of making the fan club aspect of buying music feel palpable and, and personal, but there's still a missing link. So maybe one day we'll get the itch <laughs> and figure it out. But um there's also a lot of really cool startups that are trying to figure solve this too, so I hope someone does.
0: How often... Does Ghostly get tapped up for syncs with TV or games or films? Because it seems like that could be quite a large amount of your of of your remit at this point.
1: Yeah, it's it's very hard to predict. Even everyone's like, "Oh, that would sync well," or "That would sound good in the movie." But it's oftentimes right. the stuff that you wouldn't expect that gets synced. Things that no one would have pegged. Um, we do searches every day. We have a full time person who um, is pretty much responsible for just making sure that we answer all those emails and try to get music. Oh wow! It's, it's been responsible for some of our artists' best, you know, performances and royalty statements for sure, and has helped artists build studios and. Support families and things, which makes me feel good. Um, but it's just, it's just hard. To, you can't market it. It just happens or it doesn't.
0: Could you give me some examples of those as well? Because I I think uh, you ended up doing uh, or kind of arranging um, a Minecraft soundtrack. Is that right? And some other kind of game stuff.
1: The Minecraft one is more of uh, us just sort of productizing an existing thing. So. Uh-huh. We love the um C418 score is like this kind of sati piano thing. It just, you don't think of it as that because the image is like blocks and <laughs> shapes, but it's actually this really elegant set, score. And so one of our friends in Ann Arbor linked us up with Daniel C418 and we just were like, hey, can we press this on vinyl? It had been out, you know, so that's just more of us trying to create a artifact out of an existing, and like, even, you know, I think Mojo was like less computer game music, more instant ambient classic. So it's, it's cool that like again like kind of the high low thing, it's like taking it out of context.
0: Oh so that came the other direction. So that existed for Minecraft and then you pressed it f- for vinyl. Yeah, we
1: we oh. weren't we we had nothing to do with the production or making mm. of it. We just we just helped disseminate it further. Um
0: also maybe what are some of the bigger T V or film syncs that have popped up? It'd be interesting to know who's done really well out of it and who's been able sure. to build a studio
1: uh early days we had a Motorola Razor flip phone commercial which was Dabry's first album that was (laughs) that 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 was our first real like proper sync and a cool ad that Mm. actually fit the music and vice versa Matthew Deere had a couple big commercials um Mary Latimore is in the trailer for Little Women recently really (laughs) yeah which is really cool that's really nice (laughs) it's really fun i think it's 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 a nice it's nice when the artist makes the music for themselves and their fans but it also finds a second life you know they don't don't, it's not to me it's not a compromise obviously we are the artist has a hundred percent sign off on if they want to do the license or not we don't force it
0: do you think you were one of the first labels or maybe the first label to sell music on a usb stick
1: maybe one of yeah again there's so many like cool net labels and things. Um I think the USB thing isn't that novel. I think the idea was just making again making art out of something or making an object out of something that was because that was the time of like all every remember, remember every hotel had a CD, like hotel costs and Cafe Del Mar. And like that was the era of like the CD mixed as the like brand ambassadorship. Yeah. So this store moss in New York that my friend Brian who later worked at Ghostly and helped us start the store. He's like, we play your music in the store all the time. Do you want to do a CD for us? And I'm like, yeah, we could do that. And then I was like, well, what if we made an object that you sold at the store that was a design object? The execution was okay. It probably wasn't the most. It was like 128 megs, which sounds hilarious now, considering <laughs> we had to limit the number of songs like to 12 because that was all it would fit. Uh, and we just like, you know, it was cool. It was a fun way to break the, the mold of what that could be, so
0: and moss is like moss is a kind of interesting store right it's closed down now i think is that right it's closed but it's like a boutique design store in a sense right it's it's about kind of beautiful objects i guess is that right
1: yeah i think it kind of dovetailed with like the boom of like wallpaper magazine in like 2000s it had an aura and had a vibe and and our music sounded cool in the space so i was honored that we could do something with them
0: and so at what point did you get the idea to have a ghostly store? Was that around the same kind of time?
1: There's always been a ghostly store. Like there's been a um, web shop. And like at the beginning, I f- had my friend who had- made these cool little vases, had them on the site. I don't think we ever sold any. <laughs> and we had apparel and like more merch type stuff. And But I, we sort of torqued it up around late 2000s. Brian joined the team, Brian, he's a buyer at Cooper Hewitt Museum. So he had a lot of contacts trying to build out like the aesthetic of ghostly through third party stuff too. So we were selling non ghostly design goods, you know, stationery and like Japanese pens and an expanded lifestyle. It was never really like a huge profit initiative, but it was a fun way to like show our interests beyond music.
0: And how's that changed over time then? Cause it seems to me like it's, it's more of a destination or a, a kind of headquarters in some sense. Is it, do you consider the store to be like a, the, the front of the operation in a way?
1: I think we, we kind of smashed the two together because in the past it was like ghostly.com and the ghostly store and they kind of had their own aesthetic. And the, the idea of the new site was to push it all back together. So it's, it's really just a living archive. And there's actually remnants of ghostly discovery are in it because you can search by mood in the function. So it's like a little nod to the past, but it's meant to be just a living archive of everything we've done. And that includes products, too. So I don't think of it as at the store anymore as far as a separate thing. I think of it as just retail as a function of what we do. Um, And we try try to make more original stuff or original collaborations in recent years with like... Warby Parker and Vans and Stutterheim and stuff that were actually involved in the making of, not just reselling.
0: But there is still a, a bricks and mortar storefront, isn't there?
1: Never, no, no. Oh. Um, we've had pop-ups. Oh. Um, we we done we did one with Odin. We did one with Notra in Chicago last year. Some on the dream board, but it keeps sliding <laughs> to the bottom of the board for some reason.
0: Okay, so in that case, I think. I think I was reading about, uh, it was quite an old New York Times profile where I guess it must have been more of a pop-up, um, maybe in Greenpoint?
1: I think, yeah, I think a lot of people th- assume it's a store because we call it a store, and also there's pictures of a, a store. So oh, I, I believed liked it in was in a way. store.
0: Yeah, I, I had it that makes me happy. in my and mind.
1: That's a good sign. And I think <laughs> if we had a st- it would be really exciting. It's something I definitely want to do in my life, whether whatever it is, is physical space. But right now, especially, it seems... Like a big undertaking.
0: Yeah, for sure. There was something quite funny about that New York Times write-up as well. Like it was written in that very arch New York Times kind of way. At at one point they called it Goop for the Pitchfork set, which I'm keen to know how you reacted to being labelled like the Gwyneth Paltrow of indie electronic. But
1: (laughs) Um, I mean, yeah, it's a nice like backhanded... Compliment, but I I thought the piece was was really nice, so I can't complain. It's 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 a good line. (laughs) I like it. I I don't know if it's totally accurate. I don't think people think look to us to be the we're not a a overarching brand for a certain crowd. I think it's um people say like lifestyle brand, and I think that at first I kind of reacted negatively to that, and but now I think all my favorite brands have been lifestyle brands. I think Nike is a lifestyle brand. I think Apple in its heyday was a lifestyle brand. I think Patagonia is probably the best lifestyle brand of all time. Ghostly was supposed to be sort of a faux corporate brand at the beginning. Even the name is kind of a piss take, like Ghostly International.
0: International, yeah.
1: A, <laughs> yeah, it's supposed to be like a little, like obviously sort of like funny. It's a, it's not a big company, but I like the aesthetics of branding and I like the corporata. Even like <laughs> I have a piece of factory letterhead in my room. And it's so sterile and boring. And I'm like, but it's so perfect, <laughs> I think.
0: So I want to ask you about the latest album that's come out, the new Caitlin Aurelia-Smith album mm-hmm. called The Mosaic of Transformation. Now, this one and also uh, the Mary Latimer album that you flagged up when we spoke before as well, which uh, she's a, an, a harpist, an instrumental harpist. And Caitlin aurelia Smith. Is a a synthesis, I guess you'd say. Um, these two records kind of interest me in the, in the ghostly pantheon because they tap into a different kind of kind of mellow, contemplative home listening. Ghostly have released a lot of records that I think are, are good for that kind of mood, but these are different. And maybe especially with Caitlin's, there's this kind of West Coast spirituality, even Dare I say, kind of wooiness, which mm-hmm. maybe is kind of at odds with the um, Midwestern uh, grit, authenticity, kind sure. of futurism. Um, and that led me to wonder how you relate to that music now and if you've kind of softened into that type of music in any sense, how it reflects your own changes as well as the label.
1: I guess I think of hopefully all the artists we've worked with the 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 thesis is that their voice their inner voice is bigger than whatever tool they use they use so at the time electronic music when we started was kind of considered to be like not music by a lot of people or like rock circles it was like too easy or too sterile so the idea was like let's find these people artists that who have such a voice that it supersedes the tools of the time. So the work of Tad or Matt to me felt like bigger than the platform um, in a good way. And I think of Mary and Caitlin as artists who supersede their tools. They, they master their tool and then they become a bigger, they tease the art historical jargon, transubstantiate <laughs> the whole thing. And so I, I like those, I like those voices. I think those are the artists that you remember. Um, Mary can't be reduced she can be, and maybe she's fine with it, but to me, she can't be reduced as a harpist, which is a function. She's a musician who uses this tool masterfully with pedals and synths sometimes, and she collaborates a lot. Caitlin, obviously, with the boucle and voice, creates this like whole spectrum. So, the, yeah, I think the sonics, maybe, yeah, maybe with age, just the music feels more in line with what I personally listen to, but also I think it's a revolution in. Not only um, home recording, but also maybe more of a gender gap. I like the idea that the best musicians in the world right now are women, or at least the most popular. Maybe they always have been, but um, the exposure and the velocity of innovation is being driven by non-men, which is, I think, a good thing.
0: Yeah, and I think it's obvious looking at... I mean, this does not only apply to Ghostly, but the label rosters of electronic labels... Around the year 2000, there were really virtually no women at all, really, you know, a, a tiny handful. And now that's that's completely flipped. And it's interesting with Caitlin as well, because she's not only a an electronic musician, but her instrument is this kind of notoriously complicated Buchla synthesizer, right? Which is not something that many people even use. And again, same with harp. It's not a synth, but I mean, it must be complicated. I assume it's incredibly technically um difficult so it kind of upends um you know a stereotype I, I guess so thinking back on a on a broader scale if we can con- like condense the ghostly timeline in some way obviously the music industry it changes a lot all the time anyway but in this particular 2021 20, years that you've run a label there have been so many changes and i was curious about how you see your own predictions have you made many predictions over the years that have turned out to be right or wrong and that have affected the label i mean it's
1: always everything's a prediction right because you're signing a, signing an artist and right you're hoping that they succeed yeah i don't know in some ways i think you're maybe it's just like the age i am like the ego death kind of hit <laughs> <laughs> so i don't have as much i'm I, la- I care less about being right and more about like did we do a good job i think we made good predictions about where the industry would go maybe at a macro level with discovery or drip or, but I, it doesn't really matter because it matters and it feels good, but it's not, those aren't the, the bedrock of our brand. I mean, those are just thought experiments, but there's also, that's also personal fulfillment too. For me, it feels good to be up against something and not just sort of uh, playing into the moment. It's like, there should be some tension.
0: I think you've always been, willing and keen to engage with technological changes to try new things and to potentially lead the way. At the moment, though, we're also seeing this real consolidation of power in not just major labels, the kind of age old baddie of the system, but with tech companies as well, because effectively, Apple and Google and Spotify have a lot of power especially as far as a, a, a small independent label or artist is concerned. And I wonder what you think the role of an independent label can be in the future, given that you have to work with these big companies, tech companies to even get the music out there in a sense. I mean, what, what is the, what is the point of even having a, an independent record label now, I guess?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think the dream, the the internet dream maybe is gone. Like the, Right. Wild West. I'm not, I, don't want to, I don't want to demonize any of these companies because I don't know if that's really the way forward. I also don't put my faith in any big tech company as a salvation either. They're public companies that have shareholder needs, and that's the North Star. So I think independent labels are always going to be a thing, even if it's just an artist releasing their own music, because I always love independent record labels now and then as relatively democratic. A good song is a good song. It's irrefutable. It's irrefutable. <laughs> if you make it available and people like it, it's good. Whereas fine art it's like do, who where'd you go to school? what gallery are you represented by? then I'll talk to you. Uh, film obviously has a lot of dis- distribution disparity um, and in production value question marks and maybe that's been it's been crushed, but I still feel like there's a hierarchy there. Literature I don't know enough about as far as fiction, but I'm guessing is still publisher driven. And obviously, Amazon and, you know, it's a pipeline. But yeah, music is still free. I mean, if a good song can come out of nowhere and be as good or better than anything on the charts, the the promise of the independent labels may be more important than ever. Just the function and semantics have changed, you know?
0: If you were 20 years old right now, would you want to start a label?
1: Yeah. And I think it would look similar to what we're doing now. (laughs) <laughs> it probably, would, you know, would be more savvy. It probably would be utilizing even newer tools, or be focused on the the uh, like a next gen app. But yeah, I think the idea of a culture hub focused on music is like a a forever principle.
0: Very nice. Well, in that case, I'm going to say thank you for joining me on Relevant Parties, Sam.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Oh. You've been listening to Relevant Parties from Carhartt Work in Progress. If you want to dive into more music from the labels in this series, check out the Relevant Parties playlist on Spotify. You can find the link in the show notes. And remember, you can subscribe to Relevant Parties so that you never miss an episode. It's available wherever good podcasts are found. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating and a comment on Apple Podcasts. We'd really love to know what you think. So thanks for listening and join me next time for more stories behind the world's best record labels.